What is up, everyone? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. Very excited to have a colleague from my own home office as a guest here with me today, and that is Sunita Hazra. Sunita, welcome to TMT Time. Thank you, Evan. I'm delighted to be here. I'm pumped that Sunita is here today. And actually, Sunita is physically in our podcast studio in our DC office. So Sunita, what do you think? Is it a nice setup? It's a great setup. It's not as good as being at home in Denver, but it's a good setup. So I, I have you on today because you're quasi-famous uh, in these parts out here in Colorado. Uh, and that is because of a new special, four-part special on Hulu called Wild Crime. Wild Crime is an ABC News special of which Sunita is kind of a guest star uh, about the investigation of something that happened in Rocky Mountain National Park back when Sunita was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So before I spoil anything further, Sunita, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners and then we can get into it. Sure. I'm Sunita Hazra. I'm one of Evan's partners in the Denver office in the White Collar Government Investigation Group. Prior to coming to AMP in the fall of 2019, I was the chief of the criminal division at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Denver, and I was an AUSA in the Colorado U.S. Attorney's Office for almost 20 years. So I, I presume that, uh, and for those lawyers that listen to this podcast, uh, working for the government, you don't have to bill hours. You don't have to collect. You don't have to really do much of anything except investigate cool crimes and then prosecute cool crimes, which is what we're going to talk about today, right? So, you know, you can admit it, it was more fun, perhaps. No, nothing is as fun as working with you, Evan Rothstein. So, but well, yes, I, I it was know. a good job. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. But, uh, all right. So, as chief of the crime unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office, like, what do you do? Like, I, I'm not sure people know what U.S. attorneys do. So, sure. I think it would be useful for you to tell us, like, what you did. So an assistant United States attorney, I prosecuted a variety of federal crimes, from violent crimes to white-collar crimes like fraud, environmental crimes, the whole gamut. And then when I became chief of the criminal division, I was in charge of the whole, of all criminal prosecutions and investigations in the state of Colorado. So I ran the office and the various AUSAs in it and helped, you know, on investigations as well as having my own cases. And I assume like that means you work closely with like federal law enforcement, like FBI, DEA, ATF. Do you work with the yep. ATF? You work with the whole the whole alphabet soup of federal agencies, FBI, ATF, DEA, Secret Service, as well as state partners, too. There's a lot of task forces that are a mix of federal and state partners. So and this sorry, Go and ahead. the National Park Service, which will be relevant for this. Yeah, that's podcast. that's where I was going. So like. The National Park Service, they're a, what, a, they're a federal crime-fighting agency. Is that fair assessment <laughs> of what they do? So that is one of the things. I think most people hear Park Service and they think of the friendly rangers with their hats that help you whenever you go visit one of our national parks. But they do have an investigative service branch, which has special agents, one of whom I was fortunate to work with, named Beth Schott. So I love those hats. And now that I'm thinking about this, you have one of those hats in your office. Did you get that hat as part of this investigation? I did as a thank you for the successful culmination of this investigation. 
See, I mean, I've been in your office a bunch and I've seen that hat and I don't think I've never asked about it. <laughs> then you get on TV and then I'm like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense now. All right, so let's get to wild crime, uh, which you are a, a part of um, as you roll as Sunita Hazard. So you're not actually acting, you are being yourself. Um, wild crime is a story about a guy named Harold Henthorne who uh, was investigated by you and others and then prosecuted, et cetera. So I'd actually, I want to hear the whole story. Um, and I think our listeners want to hear the whole story. Wild Crime obviously is like a five-hour uh, endeavor. And we don't obviously have that much time here on TMT time. So we're going to truncate that and pack it all into maybe 30 minutes or so. Um, so why don't you tell us what happened? And then, you know, I'll interject here and there with some some questions. On September 29th in 2012, Harold and Tony Henthorn were hiking on their for an anniversary trip in Rocky Mountain National Park. And Tony Henthorne apparently slipped and fell to her death, according to Harold Henthorne, her husband. At the time of that, it was late in the afternoon, and they were the only two people in a remote area in the park. So at the time, you know, it doesn't come to the U.S. Attorney's Office right away. And then at some point, it, uh, FBI presented it to the to the U.S. Attorney's Office and just, you know, something to look at along with the National Park Service. Long so, so how does that work? Do they like call you? Or do they come in and then present like a case or what, what do they say? Right. So originally it went to someone else in my office. So they probably came in and they needed search warrants, which is, you know, they need to get a search warrant to search Harold's home and some other places. The prosecutor came to me and was tell, sitting here telling me about, okay, you know, Park Service and FBI brought me the story. This guy is hiking with his wife in Rocky Mountain National Park, and she slips and falls. But there's all this funny stuff about it. I'm like, okay, and we're talking through it. And then he says, and the craziest thing is that uh, his first wife also died in an accident where it was only her and Harold Henthorne. You're like... Oh, wait a second. So one mysterious accident, one dead wife, flash forward, you know, 12 years later, second mysterious accident, second dead wife, what is going on? But, you know, they were still gathering evidence and so on. That prosecutor ended up leaving the office. And at the time he left, it was apparent there was something to this. So they asked me to, to take over the case. And then I started uh, looking, working with the Park Service to figure out what was going on. So that in the wild crime show, uh, the special agent, are they called special agents, the Park Service? Yeah. Okay. So Park Service special agent, you mentioned her name already, Beth Schott. So she's like lead, like on boots on the ground, police person, investigator, and she comes to the U.S. attorneys and then what do you guys like work together and investigate? How does it work? Yeah. So essentially Beth presents things and talks, we talk through things and I help her come up with investigative leads and send her off to kind of do that. We gather documents, we get legal process along the way. Beth is amazing, but it's a lot of work to dig out through, dig through and figure out how to prove a circumstantial crime. So the she had an FBI agent who got transferred, and then I reached out and brought in Johnny Grusing, who had previously done a number of serial, um, had looked into serial killer investigations. So Johnny came on board, and Johnny and Beth together set out, uh, as well as I got a forensic accountant to start digging through Harold's finances. 
So it's kind of a multi, a multi-tiered approach. One is the boring document paper trail where you sift through records and try to figure things out. Another was interviewing witnesses and going through the park. And then also there was the complicated trying to figure out where Harold disappeared to. So Harold Henthorne would disappear every Wednesday through Friday. He claimed he was traveling for work. Every week? Every week. He just disappeared every week? He would leave. He would hire a babysitter for his uh, child, and his wife was off at work, and he would go. And he claimed he was traveling for work. Pretty soon, by looking at the financial records, we realized Harold didn't have a job. He wasn't working. He claimed to be this wealthy fundraiser, charitable fundraiser, and had to travel and all these connections, and he had no income. So how how for how long how long? For about twelve most of his marriage to, to Tony Henthorne, so about 12 years, he had this charade of acting like he was this busy, wealthy, like I said, charitable fundraiser. He also claimed to be a diamond businessman. He had a story all the time. He was spinning a web. So, so wait, so his wife or his, his wife who's now passed, she was a doctor, right? Or she yeah, was... she's an eye doctor. And she came from a wealthy family to begin with. And then she was working full time with a really successful practice. So one of the things we knew we had to do is we had to figure out where Harold was going. And unfortunately for Harold Henthorne, he had a great, a great uh, investigative team trying to figure out where he was going, and he used his cell phone. So we collected records and started trying to figure out where his cell phone hit off the towers. And it turns out these great work trips where he hired a babysitter and packed a suitcase and pretended to be going someplace, he actually just left his home in Highlands Ranch and went over to the local Panera and the movie theater and we think he probably came back and slept like either in the basement of his house or outside the house. What? <laughs> so so well, he was going on work trips to the Panera yes, and the movie theater yes. every, every week? Most for the most part. And uh, when, when was the first time that you met him or interviewed him? So like how long after like Beth and the other special agents brought the case to you? Like, when do you sit down or when do you watch an, an interrogation? Like, when does that happen? So he he actually only was spoken to once before he wouldn't talk to people anymore. So wow. right after he called in that that Tony had fallen and so on, he goes home that night and uh, park ranger Mark Faraday actually went down to speak with him. And it was great that Mark did that. So Mark got like an initial explanation. And then after that, Henthorne never wanted to speak again. So we had this initial kind of inconsistent, odd statement to work off of. We had a bizarre series of events. And then when we started digging in the cell phone records more, we just kept finding more and more things. So for example, one of the key pieces of evidence we found is that that Harold Henthorne made nine trips to Rocky Mountain National Park leading up to the actual anniversary trip where he took Tony. And we could see his phone pinging off the towers to the park and back. And we realized he was going up there to look for a place to go for a hike so he could push her off the cliff. Wow. So uh, we don't obviously get to talk about murder investigations or serial killers here on TMT time. Uh, And for those of you who are wondering 
what the heck this has to do with TMT time. <laughs> it's because Sunita was on, on a TV show and that's media. So it hits the M square on TMT time. And um, the cell phone. I'm trying also, to work in yeah, the cell, cell phone. phone. There's a lot of technology here. <laughs> the M the M and TMT does not stand for murders. It's still media. Um, all right. So let's keep getting into this because this is fascinating. So you, you piece together that the cell, his cell phone was, he's not going to Panera anymore. He's now driving up to Rocky Mountain National Park. And for those listeners that are not in Colorado, um, Rocky Mountain National Park is about an hour and 20 minutes north of Boulder by car uh, or by from Denver, about 40 minutes from Boulder. Um, and where Harold lived down in Highlands Ranch, that's like a good two hour drive probably from there to mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain. So it's not just like a I'm going to go to Panera. It's a, it's a thing to go to Rocky Mountain National Park from where you live, right? Yeah. And so we realize he's looking for locations. Meanwhile, uh, the forensic analyst in my office was digging through his financial records, and we realized that Henthorne had taken out four different life insurance policies on Tony. He ended up canceling one, but he had three different life insurance policies. And what he would do is he would he would take out a life insurance policy. She would sign it. He would then pretend to cancel it and then get her to sign up for a new one. And because he controlled the bank account, he could pay all the premiums. So she never realized that the other ones weren't getting canceled. Wow. So how much money did he stand to collect if, if he hadn't run into the wrong set of feds? Four and a half million dollars. Wow. Um, so... So the, the um, I assume at some point, I, I, you buried the lead at the beginning that this happened before. When did you find out, at what point in the investigation did everybody find out that uh, his first wife also had an accidental death? So we found that out very early. What we then found out in a little bit more digging is that he'd gotten two life insurance policies on his first wife as well. So uh, that was something else we pierced together. And then we started just looking into the facts of both of them. And one of the things about Henthorne is that he just couldn't tell the truth. So there's just a series of bizarre inconsistencies. Um, but I will tell you, it's still like I'm, I'm kind of giving you these different pieces. But when we first got this case and they're putting some of this together and they're saying there's this weird accident and she slipped and fell. He's got this first wife. I'm still dubious. I'm like, well, you never know. So then they took us up there. I remember, never forget, we were hiked up to the spot. It was during the government shutdown. So the park was closed. So we got to have our private um, hike in Rocky Mountain National Park. And it's off Deer Mountain Trail. So you go up Deer Mountain Trail and then Henthorne told Tony he had a special lunch spot. So they head off the trail. So you start, Beth Schott took us off the trail and eventually took us to where he, Harold made Tony go. And when you get to that spot, it's literally an aha moment. You're like, there's no way that a 50 plus couple, you know, a couple in their fifties would come all the way down to this remote barren spot on the side of a cliff. There was just no reason to go there unless you wanted to kill her. Were there any indications that anything was going on? Was she suspecting him? Like, what did that part of the investigation turn up? So one thing became clear is that Harold was very controlling. All her friends and Tony's family were talking about how hard it was to get to Tony, 
they try to talk to her. Harold was usually in the room. He was, he just, he just seemed to control every aspect of her life. And, um, to the point where you could tell they painted this picture of it was just easier to give in to Harold. So that was, it was helpful to get that sort of background about how he just controlled everything, including the finances. Yeah. And then one of the other things is we started interviewing the friends and Harold that Harold gave a different version of the events to everyone, right? So the story he first told the park is that they were hiking, she slipped and fell. But then he starts telling people other things. One is that he was in front of her, one that he was behind her. One time he said they were on this cliff because they wanted, quote unquote, romantic time. Another time they were there to look at the view. I mean, he just, he just had a million different stories. This seems pretty sloppy by someone who's like allegedly plotted <laughs> out two different um, wife murders. Um, so did did you like have physical evidence? Like what kind of stuff did you find? Like did you search? Did, did you do a search warrant at his house? They did a search warrant at his house. They uh, scoured the site. The Park Service went over every inch of the area, and we had no physical evidence. So that's the thing. His story was that she slipped from this rocky ledge and fell. And there is sort of no physical evidence to differentiate a slip from a fall. We tried to figure out from the way she fell, but that's like impossible. She fell. Like velocity of impact <laughs> and that sort of thing, yeah. I assume. It was so too far of a distance. Yeah. How did the first wife pass away? First wife passed away because they were on their way back and apparently they had a flat tire and she had to go underneath the car and the jack slipped. The jack fell out and the car fell on her. That was, was he investigated? What? That makes no sense. Was he investigated <laughs> for that one? So that was closed out in a week. Luckily for Henthorne, it was in 95. So he didn't, there was not the same sort of phone record evidence. Oh, yeah. And his version was just, it was a windy, dark road. The jack slipped, the car fell on her, and she died. And that was sort of it. And he, you know, I think he figured out, hey, he got away with it. I got some money out of it. Let's keep going. Obviously, if this story sounds nuts. It's, I mean, that's why it was a, the subject of the wild crime show. I'm pretty sure that it was on 48 hours for mystery first. All right. So, Sydney, so did you arrest him? Like, do you prosecute him? Like, what happens? Because obviously, you're a lawyer um, in the U.S. Attorney's Office not the investigator. So you obviously get involved on the legal aspect at some point. Tell us about how that happened. Sure. So I'm involved, you know, helping the investigators, like I said, figuring out leads, filling in holes, seeing if we have enough. You know, as I described, it sounds sloppy, but it was actually like a thousand different pieces of evidence we had to put together because it was a purely circumstantial crime, right? It's literally just a fall in the in the park. So it's like a fall, tree falls in the forest. Does anyone hear it, right? I mean, that's <laughs> exactly. what it is. It's a fall in a remote area and it's putting together, you know, Henthorne's version of what he did that night, how he talked about doing CPR, but he doesn't sound out of breath on the 911 call. Anyway, it's like a bunch of things. And eventually we decide we have enough. We go to the grand jury, we get an indictment, and then uh, the special agents go and arrest him that day. And then we proceed to go through. Uh, the prosecution, you know, a normal court case. In this case, the big legal battle was whether we could get in the evidence of 
Hanthorne's first wife's death. And we did. Oh, yeah. That's cool. That's that for those non lawyers, like what rule 403, 404, 404. what is it? 404B. Yeah. We wow, did a full yeah. day hearing and we were able to get some evidence of her death in. And then we had a like a two or three week trial. September wow. Of you actually had a jury trial. Oh, that's cool. So did you try the case? I did. I tried the case along with my colleague, Valeria Spencer, and it was the two of us. And I was, because uh, it's a first degree murder charge and it's an automatic life in prison. So he had no. Oh, so it was a first, plead. it was, you had first degree. Wow. So yes. that's premeditated. You were able to prove a premeditated case of the, and the jury convicted him. And the jury convicted him. So the big challenge for trial among just proving it overall was we couldn't take the jurors to the park, right? Because if you go to the place where it happened, you just realize there's just no wow. no reason. Why couldn't did, did you try to take the jurors to the park? <laughs> we thought about it. It is a decent hike. It's about a, you know, you have to go up from about to like 12,000 feet, I think, and then go off trail and then go down a, down a very rocky, scree-filled things. There was no way we could take jurors, the judge, the defendant, court reporter, the whole nine yards. Yeah, no, that's, I, I've had trials where we've <laughs> contemplated taking the jury to the site. Obviously I don't do anything as fascinating as this, but in like commercial cases, oftentimes you want to take the jury to the site of where something, you know, may have happened related to the facts, but then you have jurors who may be disabled or may not be able to hike or have, you know, asthma and it's a high altitude. So uh, you didn't even try to take them to the to the site. So how did you recreate it for them to, to try and put them in the position to see what you saw, which is there's only one reason to go here? We did a bunch of things from drones to multiple, you know, still shots with the camera. But then finally, the they came up with this sort of 360 degree camera view and filmed the whole thing. And we created sort of like a movie version to show the jurors, as well as we had this great park ranger. I'll never forget. He comes off the witness stand because Judge Jackson lets you and he's standing there and it turns into like the equivalent of the interpretive lecture. And he's explaining to the jury where the different features are and what it looks like and how far off from the trail. And it was great. So it was kind of a combination of a lot of a lot of different types of technology. There you go for your TMT to recreate the scene. Thank you. Thank you for that extra plug. So what was the defense's primary argument? Like what were his, what was his primary defense? It was all circumstantial. It was an accident, right? That, that maybe he wasn't always truthful about his job and whatever things, but there's no evidence that he pushed his wife. It's, it was a slip and there's no eyewitnesses. There's no physical evidence that proves it. There's no confession. There was nothing, right? And so that was so. So what people don't realize is that U.S. Attorney, like you guys, only try cases that you think you're going to win, um, and generally, very few cases go to trial. Generally, so were you guys confident going into trial? Did you have some concerns? Like, what were the? Were you worried that you were going to have to do a lesser charge? Like, what was going in through your minds when you went into the trial? So I, yeah, and I think criminal cases, you you more often potentially would go to trial when you don't sure you're going to win, but it's the right thing to do. In this case, it was absolutely the right thing to do to to charge him with what he did, first degree murder. And I 
I thought about, do we try to include a lesser? And it was like, no, we have first degree. We got to go for first degree. And sure, you're nerve wracking going in and you're white knuckled, I guess, all the way till the jury returns the verdict. And so, I uh, did. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I just remember they returned the verdict and then the judge goes to excuse him. And one juror came off and hugged Tony Henthorne's mom. And it was such a moving moment. Wow. Really? So it was Tony Henthorne's family, I assume, in the courtroom the whole time? They were in the courtroom the whole time. Yeah. How long did they deliberate? They didn't deliberate very long. They deliberated a couple of hours, is my recollection. And so, did you get, do you, in criminal cases, did you get to poll the jury or ask them any questions? Um, in this, you, they were polled and we got to talk to them a little bit, but, but not very much. What about reporters? I assume at the, I mean, it was a couple of years ago with this wild crime. Obviously, this crime was heinous and interesting enough that there's now a new special on it years later. Did, was media covering, I assume, at the time, right? So the courtroom was packed and there was an overflow courtroom. I've never had that many people in a courtroom. And it was actually, it was on the cover of People magazine at one point. And, and I mentioned by name, and you don't realize how many people read People magazine till you. Your name is in it. <laughs> yeah, that's another media mention for TMT time. Uh, did you guys prosecute him for the first murder? No, we did not. So we did not have jurisdiction at the federal level. Oh, to yeah, because it's not a federal. Yep. It was not in national parklands. And the state didn't have to because he got a life sentence in the for the murder. Oh, automatically by convicting him. So there's really no point. That's so interesting. Did... Um, did you talk at any point ever to the family of the, his first wife? So we did a lot because I don't know that they could have prosecuted him for the first wife's death, just given the passage of time. So one of the things that was important for us was that they also feel like they have some closure and, you know, they attended much of the trial and we put on a lot of evidence of Lynn's, Lynn Henthorne, his first wife's death as well. So we met you know, Lynn's family, as well as obviously Tony's family. Does, uh, has Harold ever apologized? Did he, does he still profess innocence? Like, where's that guy on this? He's, he still claims he didn't do, do it. And that he, yeah, he never has confessed or admitted that he did it. All right. Well, Senia, <laughs> thank you. That was, you did a great job of synthesizing that into about 30 minutes, which is what I wanted. Um, People should still watch Wild Crime, though, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty good. I watched it, uh, and you're in it, obviously. Um, so we hope people people watch it. I end most of these episodes with asking what you do or what you are doing outside of the office. Um, I want to start with, when's the last time you went to Rocky Mountain National Park? I went last summer to Rocky Mountain National Park. But I will say, since we had to hike Deer Mountain multiple times, I don't care to hike Deer Mountain Trail in Rocky Mountain National Park anytime soon. Yeah, I assume it's forever changed your opinion of it. That's yes. hard. Yeah. All right. Well, um, what uh, I want to ask this question, because a lot of people wonder what it's like going from government to private practice. What are some of the things that you have encountered, good or bad, uh, moving out of the government in, in a role where you're prosecuting people for heinous things like Harold Henthorne did to perhaps sometimes defending people um, on the other side of the aisle. Um, 
so there's obviously lots of differences. I think one difference is in the government, their client is the entire United States, and but that's a difficult, they don't obviously call you. And it's interesting to be on this side and get to work with people directly and have more of a personal um, uh, connection with, with your client. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, listeners, you should tune into Wild Crime on Hulu. Check it out. See Sunita. Uh, reach out to her if you have other interesting questions behind the scenes of uh, crazy, heinous, basically serial killer stories. Um, but <laughs> Sunita, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been fascinating. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you.